Well, let's open up to the book of Daniel tonight. We'll start there. And then we are going to look at Esther as well. But we will start with Daniel. So let's pray, and then we will dive in again. Lord, thank you for your word and for its uh, the, the joy of reading it and discovering things in it, the complexities of it, and yet the uh, very clearness of it as well. So tonight as we uh, walk through the book of Daniel, which has both of those things, things that are clear and things that are complex, help us to uh, just get a better grasp on this book that we might understand your word better and worship you more. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so tonight we're going to look at two post-exilic books. So recall again in the history of the nation of Israel and what we've been doing as we've walked through uh, the, the Old Testament. We are now in the writings. And remember, first we had the, the law, the first five books of the Bible, which lay out the, the history of the nation of Israel up to uh, Exodus and their entrance into the land, essentially. And then we had the prophets, which started with Joshua and went all the way through the end of Kings. And at the end of Kings, we had the beginning of the exile. And then in comes the prophets, the second half of the prophets, the latter uh, prophets, which are all commenting on all of Israel's history up to that point. Why are they in exile? Why are they in the mess they're in? And then now that we're in the writings, the narrative portion has picked up basically from where we left off at Kings. Okay, so we, um, we looked at Ruth, which was a narrative, but we said Ruth was actually, you know, that's way earlier. That's before David's time, setting us up to David. Well, now the narrative portion has resumed where Kings left off. Daniel kind of picks us up again, okay? So Daniel and Esther are what we're going to look at tonight. And they uh, really fit well together because it's the stories of two, uh, well, actually in Daniel's case, four uh, faithful people out in exile outside of Israel and how the Lord preserves them, exalts them to places of power, protects his people, all those different things. And then in Daniel as well, so much of the prophecy is all giving us hope looking forward to the future, right? For the nation of Israel and then uh, for ourselves even as well, okay? Okay. So we're going to spend most of our time in Daniel tonight just because of the interpretive challenges. We're going to spend uh, a little bit of time, and this is probably because I just studied it more for myself, especially Daniel's 70 weeks, pretty pivotal uh, eschatological passage. And uh, just a heads up, I don't know, I know less than when I started is what I feel like. (laughs) So, So maybe you will feel the same thing by the time we get done with it, okay? But we'll spend most of our time in Daniel, and then uh, at the end we'll, we'll touch on Esther. Daniel has a theme, I would call it the most high rules over all. Uh, we see the Lord referred to over and over in the book of Daniel as the most high, the most high God. And the, the, the thing that is reiterated over and over to especially the kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, uh, is that the most high is the true king. He is the only king, okay? And they all uh, submit to him. They rise and fall by him. So Daniel recounts for us much of the exile under the Babylonian rule, while Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah are going to look at, at uh, the, the exile under the Persian rule, the Medes and the Persians, because we see them come in in the middle of the book, okay? Okay. Um, a contemporary, if you, if you can see your little, on your handout, you have kind of a timeline. I don't know how clear it is in black and white, but... 
you can take it home and blow it up with a magnifier if you need to or something. Or you just Google it, right? You can find a good timeline there. Daniel and Ezekiel are contemporaries. Remember when we looked, looked at Ezekiel? Ezekiel was in Babylon by the Chibar Canal when he receives his, his vision. So Daniel would have been uh, same time frame, but his ministry lasted longer. Daniel was exiled uh, when he was a boy in that first exile in 605 B.C., so you remember that there's the three deportations from Jerusalem. The final one happens in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys the city. Well, Daniel was taken in the first deportation. And that's when like the best, the cream of the crop was taken out of the land. Okay. Um, the, the book is really divided in two. If you've read through it, uh, first six chapters are largely narrative and then the last six chapters are largely visions and prophecies that Daniel is uh, um, giving us. Daniel is interesting, though. It's different from the other prophetic literature in the Old Testament, and then it's more apocalyptic. So it's much like Revelation in that way. It would be Old Testament apocalyptic literature, whereas Revelation is the New Testament apocalyptic literature. Okay? Uh, Daniel is assumed to be the author of the book. There could have been a, uh, an editor that came along later and compiled uh, the writings of Daniel into the form that we have today. However, there's a lot of first-person references to the book. I, Daniel, speaking, things like that, uh, that would, would uh, again, clue us into who was the, the author. Um, his ministry was uh, really the entire 70 years of the exile, essentially, uh, starts in 605 BC when he's when he's deported, and then the last vision he gets in chapter 10 is in 536 BC uh, under the it says in the third year of Cyrus. So that's a about a 70 year time time frame right there. The purpose of the book is this: Daniel serves to instruct its readers in the eternal truth that God is the true King. And then all other nations, including Israel, rise and fall according to his design. With a proper understanding of Yahweh's kingship, his people can live and flourish under any earthly kingdom, no matter the difficulties they may face. Okay, so I think this is kind of the overall purpose of the book. And then as we talk about outlines of the book, uh, I stole Jim Hamilton's outline here. It is a chiasm, which are always really cool to see, where you have the beginning and the ending match, and then everything works in. You could, I also think you could split it up where, where chapter 7 is the middle of the book, because I think in chapter 7 we see this wonderful scene of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man coming to him and dominion being given to him. And this is the Most High that's referenced throughout the book. And it's almost like we, we get to the, that's the middle point where we see uh, the Most High ruling over all the nations in chapters 1 through 6. And then in chapter 7 through 12, you're seeing the Most High uh, rule in his, the ruling in the future as he's looking forward in these visions. But this is the, the outline that we'll kind of work our way through tonight. Uh, and again, I stole this from, from Jim Hamilton. So what I want to do is I kind of want to walk through each of the chapters, just broadly touching on a, on a couple of, of points. And then once we get to chapter 9, we will slow down and look at that a little bit more closely. So chapter one is Daniel exiled, and it seems to focus, I think, on the, the flourishing of these young men in exile, 
right? Here's these guys that are, are brought out and there's this test that is given, to, or the, they, they ask for a test essentially, right? Give us the vegetables and the water. Let these guys eat all this other junk food essentially. And at the end of a certain time period, let's see who is really, really healthier. And what happens? They flourish. Look at verse 17 of chapter one. It's because of the Lord that he causes this, right? As for these four ewes, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Dana, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. So why are these guys prospering and flourishing in exile? It's because of the Lord, right? He is, he is uh, it, making them flourish in this way. The first part of the chapter, of course, gives us uh, the, how they came to be in, in Babylon. So this is in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Uh, remember, Jehoiakim was the one that is taken to Babylon, and he's imprisoned there for a number of years. But ultimately, he is, at the end of uh, a period of time, he's released from prison. He's given a seat at the table, and this is the hope of the line of David, Right? That's the importance of King Jehoiakim, is that the line of David is not snuffed out. All those other rulers that come after him, like Jeconiah and those guys, they, they die. Uh, Gedaliah, Zedekiah, uh, they, they die. But the line of David, that covenant promise that God made to David, continues on through Jehoiakim. And you can go and trace that in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 2, then, gives us uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision, and we have this statue representing four kingdoms. And before we get to that, I think actually what we're seeing first in chapter 2 is that all of the descriptions of how these young men are flourishing in the kingdom is put into practice, right? So we see in chapter 1 they have uh, wisdom and understanding and visions and dreams and how the Lord has blessed them. Uh, so like in chapter 1, verse 20, and says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 13, uh, the, the king has a dream. He sends for his wise men to come and interpret it. They can't, right? So what do we read in 2.13? The decree went out. The wise men were be about to be killed. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. But then Daniel responds. So these guys have, they are, they are, up, they are the king's advisors. They are his wise guys, not in the, not in the mob sense, right? But in the, in the sense of his counselors. They've been exalted to this. Uh, and then look at verse 14. Daniel responds, replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. Uh, so this is how they're responding and acting. And then look at verse 19 of chapter 2. Uh, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So again, the Lord is causing them to flourish. He is enabling them to interpret these dreams and to give understanding, preserving them in the land. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 11. This is interesting. This is the, the, uh, the wise Babylonians. They say, the thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Right? So this is interesting. Then look at verse 28. Here comes Daniel. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So here you're saying, I know the God who's not with flesh. 
He's revealed the, 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 uh, the dream. It kind of reminded me of, of Paul, right, on Mars Hill, when he says, I see these idols. You have an idol to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him, right? Here's Daniel. I'll tell you about the God who is not dwelling with flesh, right? And he has revealed your dream. So then Daniel gets into... Um, Well, and you notice as well, his prayer, he starts in verse 20 and goes on. He recognizes this is all from the Lord, right? And over and over, Daniel is, he's a man of upstanding character, worships the Lord faithfully, and here he's praising him for revealing this dream to him. But this dream that Daniel interprets that Nebuchadnezzar has, uh, it, it shows that he is king because Yahweh has made him this king. And then Daniel in this dream sees an everlasting kingdom of Yahweh coming. Right. Nebuchadnezzar, as we're going to see in chapter four, right? He thinks he's, well, all these kings, right? Uh, even uh, Dan, uh, who is it before Nebuchadnezzar? The, the Assyrians, right? They thought their kingdom was going to last forever. And here comes Nebuchadnezzar and he wipes them out. And Nebuchadnezzar thinks his kingdom's going to last forever. And then here comes the Medes and the Persians and they're going to wipe them out, right? But ultimately, it is the Lord's kingdom that will rule forever. Nebuchadnezzar, in response to Daniel's interpretation, recognizes the greatness of his God. Now, in this dream, you're introduced to four kingdoms, and I put this chart in your, in your, uh, in your notes, which is a helpful thing. Uh, four kingdoms that we, we will see again. So the first is Babylon. So they are described in chapter 2 as having a head of gold. And then the second kingdom is a chest of arms and silver, which is Med- Medo-Persia. And then the third kingdom is Greece, the belly and thighs of bronze, and we'll get to them again in a little bit. And then this fourth kingdom is of legs and iron, feet of clay and iron mixed. And this is uh, yes, thought to be Rome, but also spiritually typified as another kingdom in the future. And then that stone or the mountain that comes in and crushes these things is the kingdom of God that is coming in and ruling the kingdom of God through the Messiah. Chapter 3 gives us a, a familiar account of the, the deliverance from the fiery furnace. Here, of course, Daniel's not the focus, but his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and, Abed, and Abed, Abednego. Why can't I say it? Abednego. Wow. Sometimes it's like, what did I say this morning? Everybody have a suite, right? Instead of a seat. I just can't talk sometimes. Sorry about that. So chapter 3 shows faithfulness to worship Yahweh alone. Um, And this comes in this demonstration where Nebuchadnezzar builds this golden image and commands all of the the people to worship it. And there's this confrontation that arises because uh, these faithful Jewish men will not bow down to worship this idol. They know there is no other God than Yahweh, so they will not bow down. And it comes to a head in verse 17. Um, where there is a public declaration for them to demonstrate Yahweh's ability, his one, his worthiness to be worshiped, but also his ability to deliver and save them. So they say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so here, of course, uh, they don't bow down. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. And who is shown to be the greatest God? Nebuchadnezzar? No, he doesn't have the ability to even take these guys' lives. Rather, the, the fire actually consumes his own soldiers, if you think about it. Really fascinating in that way. Uh, and so again, Yahweh is shown to be the true God. These Yahweh worshipers are preserved. 
And again, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the greatness of God. So he says like in verse 29, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Right? So again, he recognizes the greatness of Yahweh. But yet, he's not a worshiper yet. Chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar humbled in his seven years of insanity. And this really picks up in chapter 4 and verse 2, uh, where, well, where Nebuchadnezzar, or it actually be verse 4, because I think verses uh, 1 through 3, again, are Nebuchadnezzar's response to the fiery furnace and praising Yahweh. Um, So again, here comes uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he has another dream. And the point is seen in verse 25, uh, where Nebuchadnezzar is shown through this dream that his kingdom will be, he will be humbled, it will come to an end, and again, the Lord will be exalted. So Daniel comes and interprets the dream for him. He says in verse 27, he calls for him to repent. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So here's an opportunity to turn from your sins and not have all the things that I've just told you are going to happen, happen. Well, what happens to Daniel or to Nebuchadnezzar? Look at verse 30. Uh, he, the king he is, uh, he's up on the roof of his, his palace. Uh, whenever kings are on uh, roofs or looking out over roofs in the Bible, it's never a good end for them, right? David is looking out, sees Bathsheba. Nebuchadnezzar's up on the roof of his house and he declares, hey, look at all this kingdom that I've built. And immediately he is driven insane. So verse 30, he says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So the Lord brings judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately to humble him and show him who is the Most High. And that it is, it is the Lord. And again, he becomes, after this period of seven years, he's restored. And here he truly, I think, uh, he gets saved, I think, is what we would honestly see. Right? So he says in verse 34, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Right. So a wonderful prayer of humble uh, response and praise from Nebuchadnezzar as he is humbled by the Lord. Chapter 5, we get to Belshazzar. So Nebuchadnezzar eventually dies, and Belshazzar takes over his kingdom. And here he too is humbled, but it's interesting. We don't have near the amount of uh, record regarding Belshazzar as we do Nebuchadnezzar. And, and where Nebuchadnezzar seems to be given opportunities to repent, Belshazzar, we're going to see, is found weighed. And he's weighed, and he's found wanting, and judgment is, is coming for him right away. Chapter 5, I think, has a theme that is really connecting us to proper worship as well. Uh, so what we see is, is Nebuchadnezzar, or Belshazzar in verse 4 is having a feast, and he brings in all of the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. Because you remember, they, those had been carried away. And what is he doing with them in verse 4? 
Is he worshiping Yahweh? No, right? He's praising the gods of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So he's using these, these vessels that had been dedicated. You think about when we were in, um, like in Exodus, and there's all those instructions in, in Leviticus, all the instructions about how these things were to be made, uh, what they were to be used, how they were to be cleansed. Uh, it was very specific. And here, this guy is a pagan, worshiping pagan gods with them. So I think there, there is a, a theme that, that is seen here about proper worship. But Belshazzar, uh, what we see is that he is proud like his father, and he is going to learn where the greatness of his father's kingdom came from, and by, in turn, his, his king as well, or his kingdom as well. So look at verse 18. Okay, of course, the, the, the hand appears, writes, on the word, writes the words on the wall, mene, mene, tekel, a parson. There's no one that is able to interpret it, so Daniel is sent for, and he makes the interpretation known. But he says in verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Okay, Belshazzar doesn't recognize this like his father. He thinks he's exalted himself and made him this great king. Uh, And here the Lord is showing up, no, I am the true king. Every knee will bow to me. So verse 20 says what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened, he was proud, he was brought low. And then it says in verse, the end of verse 21, until he knew the most high was God. So he was, he was humbled. And then he goes on to say in verse 30, the, the conclusion of this writing on the wall, what it means is this very night, the, the, your kingdom will be delivered over into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. And that's exactly what happens. It says in verse 30, that night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So the Lord's word comes to fulfillment at that exact moment, just as he, as he said it would. Then we get to chapter seven or to chapter six, and of course another uh, familiar account with Daniel in the lion's den. He's now under the, uh, which this uh, I also thought was really interesting. Daniel serves under four different kings at this time, and he's in a high place of power in each of them, right? So we have a here we have a transition in power, and you think about what happens in in our country when you have a, a different political off party take over. The office, what do they do? They go and clean everybody out. You don't want any of these advisors around. Well, I think this again shows the Lord preserves Daniel, exalts him. He really was considered, he was a wise man. So here he is, he's under Nebuchadnezzar, under Belshazzar, and now he's under Darius, and then he's going to be under Cyrus as well. So, but in chapter six, the focus is on the preservation of Daniel in spite of uh, attempts by other powerful figures to destroy him. So there's some political mystery and intrigue as they're trying to to knock him off. But the one thing that you notice in chapter 6 is that, like, uh, look at verse 4, there's nothing they can find to bring against him. There's no, uh, nothing in the closet, no skeletons in the closet to be brought out to charge Daniel with any wrong. So they can, cons- again, much like the the event in chapter 3, conspire a way to bring him down because they know he's a devoted worshiper of the Lord. And of course, it doesn't work. Daniel is faithful to the Lord. He's thrown into the lion's den, and the Lord preserves him. And then we get to chapter 7, and chapter 7 through 9 are what we're going to look at here. And these are Daniel's visions, and there's four kingdoms represented in various ways. So chapter 7, the focus, I think, first 
is on the most high who rules. So he sets up kings and tears them down. He gives power and he takes it away. He exalts and he abases. And all kings of the earth are to recognize that he is the most high God. This has been a theme that has been, I think, developed. In chapter seven, we see though the, the ancient of days exercising dominion through the son of man. So look at um, verse nine. This is an important passage. This is important as well because the phrase the son of man is Jesus's favorite title for himself. This is the title he uses for himself over and over in the gospels. Whenever you read Jesus saying, I'm the son of man or referencing himself in that way, think back to Daniel chapter seven and he is this one, okay? So Daniel sees in verse nine, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. This part connects to an earlier part in chapter 7, which we'll get to in a minute. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Then he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when we pray things like the Lord's Prayer, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, we're praying for this. We're praying for Jesus to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So here we see, again, the most high rules over all and he has given dominion to the Son of Man and he, his kingdom will be established and will endure forever. Now, this vision comes after verses one through eight, which has uh, a vision again of the four kingdoms that we saw in chapter two. But this time they're described in different ways. So that chart that you have again uh, breaks, <coughs> breaks those things down. So we see Babylon is described as a winged lion, Medo-Persia as a bear, Greece as a winged leopard, and then this spiritual kingdom, which is typified by Rome, as a dreadful and terrifying beast with ten horns, right? That's why he talks about the, the I heard the horn talking that we read in verse uh, 11, okay? Um, so these, these kingdoms, again, are going are gonna to come up uh, in, in a little bit. Um, it seems, though, that that these the, the point I think with this vision of the ancient of days and the son of man coming after this vision of the four kingdoms, the point is that these are kingdoms of men that will not stand against the kingdom of God, right? If, if, you, if we can't, you, you're like, boy, this is really strange language. I don't understand a horn talking. I can't picture what that's like. The point is these kingdoms of men will fall to the kingdom of God. And that's gonna be described more. So chapter eight, we move on and we see Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. And this is now dealing with just two of these four kingdoms. So if you have Babylon, and then the first is the Babylon, the last kingdom is a spiritual kingdom or is Rome. In between, we have the Medes and the Persians and Greece. And that's what's pictured in chapter eight with the ram and the goat. So 
two of these kingdoms are focused upon. In chapter 8, and then this will also expand in chapter 11, uh, chapter 8 references the division of the kingdom of, of Greece, which would be, uh, which one was uh, the, uh, the goat, the division of Greece into four separate kingdoms, which we'll see happens under Alexander the Great and four generals. And then as we get to chapter 11, these four generals and these four kingdoms will be narrowed down again as we look at just two of them, the kings of the north and the kings of the south. But we'll get to that in chapter 11 in just a bit. And then we get to chapter nine and Daniel is uh, praise this wonderful prayer of repentance, which is, I think, a, a model prayer even for us as we consider confessing and repenting sin. But here he's doing it for the nation. And this is a prayer of response into his understanding that the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah for how long they were to be in exile has come to its end, right? Or that, it, that it's nearing its end. And so he's recognizing that, that we have sinned against the Lord. That's why we're in exile. Do you remember back in, it's in First Kings chapter 8, I believe it is, when Solomon dedicates the temple to the Lord, he prays this wonderful prayer of dedication. And he says, and this is also coinciding with what Moses had promised and what Pastor Jess brought out this morning, that the nation of Israel would sin against the Lord and they would be sent into exile. And so Solomon says, when they're in exile and they repent, and they turn towards Jerusalem and pray, here, heal their sin, and bring them back to the land. Well, Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, I think, is exactly doing that, right? He recognizes we are in exile because of our sin. I am doing exactly what the law has commanded, that when we recognize our sin, we're to call out to the Lord, to cry out to him in repentance, and he will restore us. And so here, the end of the 70 years, has come to a pass, and so he's praying now for the Lord to restore them back to the land, to be faithful to, to his word. So in response to this, Gabriel shows up in verse 20, and he shows up and he says, the Lord has heard your prayer, your prayer of repentance. And this leads to this vision of the 70 weeks, okay? So let's read these verses. Verse 24 Chapter 9, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay. Does everybody have that passage? Do I need to say any more about it? You got it? That was, that, that was a joke. Is a terrible joke. Uh, so anyway, as we jump into this, though, this is, a, this is a pretty crucial passage for eschatology. And eschatology is not my favorite area of theology. It's just not. Uh, but I've been, it's, it's good for me to be forced to study these things out and try to grapple with them. And again, I come to the conclusion that I 
no less than I did before, okay? But hopefully we can kind of walk through and maybe you can see kind of the broader uh, point as well as some of the other uh, interpretations of what this means, okay? So first of all, we have to understand that when Gabriel shows up, uh, this is a response. uh, These 70 weeks are describing, it's the answer for what comes next for the people after their exile. That's the first thing you need to understand, okay? This is all in response to Daniel praying and saying, uh, I, I understand the 70 years are over. And so Gabriel shows up and says, okay, this is what the next 70 weeks looks like. Now we're going to talk about what the 70 weeks are, but it's giving us a roadmap for the future, a promise that the end of the exile has come just as the Lord has said. Okay, that's point number one. Now, the next thing is in verse 24, there are six purposes that are given for uh, this time period. Okay, and those are to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay, so these are goals that will be accomplished in this time frame. Now, this 70 weeks is best understood as 490 years. Okay, and how we come to this is you have 70 weeks of years. So a week here is seven years not uh, seven days, but it's seven weeks or 70 weeks of years. Okay. So 490 years. And that's not insignificant because what it is, is it's a tenfold Jubilee. So Israel, you remember their whole pattern is on the Sabbath, right? So it's a seven day week. You work six days and then you rest. Well, the same principle was to apply to their land. So you worked the land for six years and then you let it rest on the seventh. Well, Israel didn't do that. And so they went into exile for that sin for 70 years to make up for all of these missed Jubilee years that they were supposed to be uh, reckoning. Well, actually, a Jubilee is every 49 years and the 50th year is the Jubilee. But the land was to have a Sabbath rest every seven years. And they did not do that. And so it's multiplied by 10 for the number of years they missed that Sabbath rest. And that's why they're in exile. Okay, makes sense so far with our numerology here? Okay, so then this uh, uh, tenfold jubilee of 490 years, because in the jubilee year, uh, all the land would go back to its original owners. So if you had sold land to another person in the jubilee year, that would all be restored. Okay, so there's a lot of uh, really important things that happen in that. But again, because they're not observing the Sabbath rest of the land as they should, they're not observing the jubilee and all this. Well, this tenfold jubilee is the ultimate jubilee it's it's a it's a big big deal okay so that's why the 490 years okay now again when we come to this interpreting uh of what these 490 years are what's supposed to happen here uh, i do think daniel he says in chapter 12 and verse 8 i heard but i did not understand Right? And that's like, that's the best line in eschatology. Because here's Daniel, he's receiving a vision from the Lord. He's like, I heard, but I did not understand. Okay, that means that we can hear and sometimes we don't understand. And so as we talked when we were going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, there is a need for humble eschatology. Right, I hold this with an open hand. I don't have it all figured out. If anybody thinks they've got it perfectly figured out, I'm sorry, you just haven't looked hard enough. Because <laughs> there are holes you will find in your view. Now, to interpret this 70 weeks, there's basically two questions you have to to ask first that really seem to uh, 
help you shape the conclusions you're going to come to. So the first is you have to make a determination of how literal you're going to take this time period, right? That's the first one. Um, and that regards not only the 490 years, but also the 70 years of exile, right? Because depending on how you date it, it comes out as 66 years, 70 years, something like that. So is it a literal 70 year exile and then a literal 490 years? That's the first question that you have to, to, uh, to ask, okay? Then the second question um, is you need to make a determination of when these 70 weeks of years begin. So when he says in verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed, when do we start counting these things? Right? This is the, probably the biggest point of contention in, in drawing what you think is being, being brought out here. Okay? Um, so there's a decree that is spoken of. And the question is, what decree is that? Is that decree of Cyrus uh, when he decrees for the people to go back to the land? Or is it a decree that comes under Nehemiah when Nehemiah goes back to the land and starts rebuilding the temple? Or is it the decree that Ezra has in between those two where he goes back to the land and the temple is being built in that time frame? Okay, so does that make sense so far? Not really. All right, good. I'm glad you're as confused as I am, okay? And then there's something else that we need to notice in these 70 weeks is that they're broken up in a couple of different ways. So the first of all, we're told that there are seven weeks of seven years. So the first grouping is 49 years. Something happens in that time frame. And then we get a group of 62 weeks. Uh, so 62 times seven is 434 years. And that's a total of 483 years. And there's one more week, and this is the most hotly debated week, what happens in Daniel's 70th week, uh, that one week is left and it is split in half. So at the middle point of this 70 week, something happens. And that's, the, that's what all of the questions are. Okay, so I have given you, I hopefully, a somewhat helpful breakdown of, I would say, the two broadest views would be the, the broadly reformed view, which uh, I stole from Sam Storms in Kingdom Come, his book Kingdom Come, where he puts forward this view, and then the broad dispensational view, which John MacArthur puts forward and many other people like him. And then I'm also presenting a third way from Jason DeRucci, who I've been using his notes as I study through it, and he has uh, an interesting thing as well. So, boy, I don't think we can walk through all of this. <sighs> How do I do this? Um, Let's just do this. The, the literalness starts with it. So the broadly reformed view, as, as um, talked about by Sam Storms, they would take that 490-year period to not be a literal 490 years, but just broadly speaking, a long period of time. Okay? Uh, whereas the dispensational camp, like uh, MacArthur and those, would say this is a literal 490 years, and everything has been filled up to Daniel's 70th week, and we have not entered into it yet. There's a gap that we're in right now called the church age. And at the end of the church age, the rapture happens, and then that initiates Daniel's 70th week, okay? And then that is split in half, that Daniel's 70th week. Now, Jason DeRucci, the third way, I think his is really fascinating because he says that is a literal 490 years, and it's all been completed now. Daniel's 70th week has already been done, but yet the things that were begun have not yet been fully completed, if that makes sense. So inaugurated eschatology, that is Jesus brings all of these things in, but yet it's not fully consummated yet. It will still be fully consummated in the future. So that also relates to the six goals. So in verse 24, when you see all these six things that are listed out, the question is, are these six things completed? Well, 
the broadly reformed view says, yes, they are. They're all completed in Christ. Whereas the dispensational view says the first three are, the next three need to be completed yet. Okay? Make sense? Good. I'm glad, glad you got it figured out. The other important one is when do these 70 weeks start? So this is where... Again, I think Sam Storms would say that the 70 weeks you start counting from the decree of Cyrus when he says to go back to the land in 538 BC. The dispensational view would take that the 70 weeks begin with the decree of Nehemiah in 444-445 BC. And then that math works out so that the end of the 69th week ends with Jesus' crucifixion. Right? That's how they, how they would do that. And then and then Jason Derucci would say, well, actually, I think it's Ezra's, the decree where Ezra goes back to the land. And then the, the 69th week begins uh, at Jesus's baptism. And then it ends basically with, it, with the beginning of the church, right? And he sees right in the middle of the Daniel 70th week is the crucifixion of Jesus, okay? Those would be kind of how they would view those, those two things. That would be the, the, I think, the main important points uh, that we need to to understand. I, I put in your notes the questions that I asked, and I went and saw, okay, how do they how do they answer these different things? Okay, does that help in any way? Or are you more confused than ever before? Questions. Right. Yes. Right. Yes, right, right, and that's where, and here's the other thing that I, as I looked at this and I read these, and these are all like godly people, uh, I agree with all of them in different areas, there's not, nobody's like, we have no scriptural basis for the position that we hold, right, they, they make sound scriptural, biblical arguments at times, some I think are less sound than others, I, I do think this is a literal time period he's talking about, um, because the argument that is made that it's not a literal time period, like they go in reference when Leviticus talks about the sabbatical years and the year of Jubilee, and they try to say that that's not referencing a literal time period, but it absolutely is. So that's where I go, like, I don't know how you come to the conclusion that they're talking about a non-literal time period in these passages where it seems to me to be very literal, because that's why Israel's in exile, because they didn't do these things, okay? So I, I think it's a literal 490 years, um, yeah, and that's about all I know, right? <laughs> so things like that. Okay, let's, we'll zoom through the end here. Uh, I know that that was not probably as helpful as I wanted it to be, but that's how it goes. Chapters 10 through 12, we see Daniel's vision of the end of the exile. Broadly, chapters 10 through 12 are describing what Daniel has as that is received by him in the book of truth, which he talks about in chapter 10, verse 21. Um, chapter 10, uh, the theme seems to be that of a terrifying future. Uh, and the latter days, verse 14 talks about that. And then verse 18 talks about spiritual warfare that's taking place. So it's kind of giving you an idea of of what's going to happen, okay? Um, the, the point, though, in chapter 10 is also seen in verse 18, where Daniel is given, these are words of comfort that are meant to encourage him and bolster his faith, and that's exactly what they do, right? And so even though, like, Daniel sees terrifying things, we read this, and we're like, I don't know what this all means. It's kind of terrifying as we read about beasts and horns talking. The point is, the Lord 
absolutely has a plan, and he is directing all of history for his purposes, and so we can be encouraged in that. Chapter 11 focuses on two of the four generals that had assumed Alexander the Great's empire. If you'll recall, uh, we talked about that earlier when Alexander the Great was, died. Uh, his kingdom was split into four kingdoms. And so what chapter 11 is talking about is two of those four kingdoms. Uh, the kingdom that is in the north, which was um, the, the Seleucids ruling from Antioch and Syria, and then the king of the south, is the Ptolemies that are ruling from Alexandria and Egypt, and they come up against one another in battle. Uh, there's this one that's described in... Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, the Abomination of Desolation passage, wherever that is. That's believed to be Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, 11, 21 through 45 is where that passage is found. Uh, that's believed to be that one Antiochus Epiphanes. This is also another big question in prophecy uh, because Jesus says in the um, Sermon on the Mount, when you see the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Daniel, you'll understand what this is happening. Well, that abomination happened with Antiochus Epiphanes, and then it's also believed to have happened again with uh, Titus, the Roman general that came in in 70 AD and destroyed uh, the city. So the question is, has that been fulfilled or not? Or is it to be fulfilled still in the future? That's the other, the other question. Okay. Uh, chapter 12. Well, actually, it's, it begins first at the end of chapter 11. Uh, it's describing another king that, that arises at the time of the end after these kings of the south and the north. Uh, chapter 12 talks about a great time of trouble from which your people will be delivered. And here we're going way into the future because in verse 3, he's now talking about the resurrection, right? So here, uh, the timeline isn't necessarily quite as uh, detailed as we want, right? Because we go from historical events that happened in the, you know, uh, late 100 BC era, right? All the way to the resurrection, Right, so we're we're some things are being skipped over, but what we see is that some are raised to everlasting life, others are raised to everlasting contempt. So, verse seven, Daniel responds and asks, "How long shall it be to the end of these wonders?" Uh, and he's told this phrase, "A time, a half a time, and a time," and uh, you can interpret that as that's when Daniel responds and says, "I heard, but I did not understand," and that's where I end the book. I heard. I read, but I did not understand, okay? Paul House said this, it, uh, commenting on chapter 12, verse 13. Daniel is given a hope, and he says this, the hope Daniel can take to his grave is that the grave is not his final home, right? So even in these passages that drive me bonkers in so many ways, right, uh, these eschatological passages, there is these concrete truths that we can come back to, right? The grave is not the end. There is a future resurrection, and there is a future hope, okay? And that's where we end Daniel. Questions? All right, good. That means you're, you're as lost as I am. We, as in my usual uh, arrangement, right, I have 10 minutes left to finish one more book. So Esther, let's, let's, we'll zoom through Esther. Uh, really, uh, the story of Esther, I think we're all familiar with, right? Uh, it, it's a unique book in that, like, uh, there's no reference to the Lord, right? So it's, it's uh, a different book in that way. Um, some have called, uh, defined the Lord's actions in the book of Esther as the God behind the scene, right? So you see these things, 
Well, how, how are these things happening? Well, there is a Lord. There, Yahweh is controlling, and he is orchestrating all of these events. Uh, it takes place after Daniel's time period. So this is uh, an after Cyrus. This is under uh, this King Darius. You have in your, uh, in your notes uh, a picture of the Persian Empire. Uh, the farthest reaches of that was the empire of this king, Darius. It's a huge empire, right? It says in the beginning, it's like from India. Uh, well, I should probably go to the book of Esther. That would probably help me. Um, I don't know if I can find it. Um, it's a huge, huge empire from India to Ethiopia, right? So Asia to Africa, right? This is a large chunk of territory that he reigned. The other thing that's, about, that's interesting about Esther, has anybody read through it recently? It's a very easy read, isn't it? It's just like, it's a wonderful piece of literature, just in and of itself. It's descriptive. It's, it's like a good story that has good character development. It has plots and subplots, uh, vivid imagery describing all of these things. So it's so easy to read in that way. And I think that, that it's, it's unique in that way. Um, but the purpose of the book is this. It's a divinely inspired record of God's providential protection of his people after the exile outside of the land of Israel. So we see in the life of Esther and Mordecai, a trust in God assured that he will still be faithful to his covenant promises, okay? Um, I'm not, because I think we're familiar with the story of Esther, I just want to move to, I think, the purposes of the book, and then we will be done with that, okay? And those purposes, I've got six uh, purposes or themes that I think are important. The first is that idea of the Lord's providential protection of his people in exile. Okay, so the, the story of Esther is, right, that, that Haman wants to wipe out all the Jews, but the Lord uses Esther, exalted to the queen of the country, and Mordecai to save them and to prevent this from happening, okay? So that's the first thing, is that these people are, uh, the, are preserved outside of the land of Israel, and if the initial readers of the book of Esther are exiled Jews— or Jews that are just going back into the land, and as we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah, they're facing a lot of opposition, it'd be really encouraging to hear the story of how God has faithfully preserved us, right? And against all odds, right? Okay? The second theme is that of the providence of God, okay? When we're talking about the providence of God, we're talking about the means by which God's sovereignty is exercised, Right, so sovereignty is his rule over all things. Providence is how he carries that out through normal actions. Okay? So in, in um, Esther, all the things that God has willed and decreed to happen, providence carries those things out. Um, some of the providentially happened things that, that happened during this time, uh, you think about the fact that Esther is in Susa, the capital, at the time that this wicked Haman wants to destroy the Jews. That's providential. It's not an accident, right? Uh, The fact that Queen Vashti upsets the king and is banished so that he has to get a new queen is providential. That's not an accident, right? That's of the Lord. Uh, The fact that Esther enters the beauty pageant, so to speak, or is taken, brought into the harem to be one of the the king's future wives. That's not an accident, right? Right? the the fact uh, Mordecai of course he hears a plot to assassinate the king and he goes and he stops that from happening and the king doesn't do anything about it later but later on the king can't sleep and what does he happen to do he's like why don't we open up the book of the chronicles of my kingdom and read to me and so they read to him and what do they happen to read 
the fact of what Mordecai had done. And so they go and honor Mordecai for that, right? Uh, That is a, a providential thing. And the same thing that Haman is so infuriated that night that he wants to kill Mordecai. So he comes to the king and says, hey, and the king tells him, I want to exalt somebody. And it turns out to be Mordecai, not Haman. That is is uh, providential, okay? Uh, The third thing would be the flourishing of God's chosen people. So I think just like we saw in Daniel, we see in Esther, here are people that that are exiles from their land. They go into another kingdom and they are exalted to the highest position next to the king, right? That is, that is the Lord causing his people to flourish. At the end of Esther, it says that uh, what they do is the decree is given to go and kill all the Jews, and then another decree is issued that the Jews can defend themselves. Well, all the people of the land, they're fearful of the Jews, and so they're going to line up with them, and the Lord gives them great success and influence in the kingdom. The fourth thing would be a failed attempt at genocide, right? This is the, even now, right? There are nations that are seeking to, to destroy the Jews. They hate the Jews. And this is not the first or the last attempt at that. The fifth theme would be the seed of the woman crushing the seed of the serpent, right? So this goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and that promise that uh, the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent, well, ultimately, we understand Jesus is that seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent. But here it's, it's played out in this way. Um, Mordecai and Esther are from the tribe of Benjamin. Remember who, who else is from the tribe of Benjamin? He's the first king in Israel. Saul, right? Uh, and then there's another man, Haman, who is an Agite, or he's an Amalekite, a descendant of King Agag. If you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 17, when Israel's first coming out of Egypt, the first people to to attack them are the Amalekites. And they are always a thorn in the side of the nation of Israel. Well, Saul, a Benjaminite, his job was to go and totally destroy the Amalekites, but he didn't do it. There's that scene in in, uh, 1 Samuel when Saul comes back from battle and He's offering a sacrifice and Samuel comes up and he says, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear my, in the background, right? And Sam, Saul says, well, we saved the best of the sheep and we saved the king. And Samuel says, well, this is why your kingdom is being torn from you because you've not obeyed me. And then it has my favorite verse in the Bible where Samuel hacked Agag to pieces, right? That's a great visual uh, picture there. But what happens in Esther is that Haman is an Amalekite. And here's the Jews, the seed of the woman, the Benjaminite, crushing the seed of the serpent in the Amalekites and Haman, right? So it's continuing on. That promise is happening in all these, being fulfilled in all these different ways, okay? And it is true, after this time period, there's, there's no more record of the Amalekites. They just disappeared off the face of the earth because God was faithful to his promise. And then finally, uh, the promise to Abraham is fulfilled here again. When the Lord in Genesis 12 said to Abraham that those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse, right? That's what happens here, right? So those like Haman that sought to curse the Lord's people, what happens? The curse is brought upon him. He is crushed. He is destroyed. Those who bless the Jews come alongside and help them, what? They're preserved and restored. And so I think those are some of the themes from the book of Esther. Now you can go home and read it for yourself and see if those things stand out to you.